Like, I'm allowed to go in and use the restroom if I really have to. There's someone at the door. Do you really have to? <laughs> Hello, I'm Justin. I'm Mark. We're the J-Pops. And we are attempting parenting in Japan. Welcome to the inaugural episode of the J-Pops. Um, I guess I can spell out the title in case anybody didn't catch it up to this point, but the J is for Japan, the Pops is because we are fathers, or I should say expectant fathers, soon-to-be yes. fathers. Soon-to-be. And um, yeah, that's what we're doing here. We are uh, talking about parenting, and it's sort of as we go through it. Um, so we're not experts for sure. Um, hopefully we'll have some experts advise us along the way and we'll ask each other questions and um, uh, you'll get our non-expert opinions on those questions. That's the plan. Right. So uh, today, I guess we can jump right into it. Uh, we've got yeah. a topic yeah, today, go which um, yeah, as we uh, as we we're talking about, we're just expectant fathers. So we'll talk about things as they come up. And one of the big things that's come up for both of us is IVF right. and uh, going to the fertility clinic. Yeah, because for both of us, it's been kind of an arduous journey of getting to pregnancy. It hasn't been easy like some people have, so we've had to go through and do IVF. Yeah, it's um, it's funny how you spend many years worried about pregnancy in one way, and then you spend many more years worried about pregnancy in the other way. Yeah, yeah. it it, it is is difficult sometimes, and um, uh, yeah, it, we were on the on the not the bandwagon, we were trying to get pregnant uh, for something like three or four years. Uh, it right. And we went to the fertility clinic and had several rounds of this and that tests. Everything always came back really positive and like, oh, yeah, you guys should be fine. And still there was no pregnancy. So we, we went through the IVF eventually and did it a few times over. And here we are four years later. And uh, my wife is now... Uh, in her second trimester of pregnancy, it's all looking fine and safe. Um, and how about Excellent. your sort of background in terms of the what led to the IVF? Yeah, kind of the same thing. Um, not not as long as yours in the IVF aspect of it, but it's been a couple of years. We started really trying um, probably about three years ago, and then a year ago started going to the clinics and doing getting assistance and going through IVF eventually and and yeah my my wife is now also in her second trimester which kind of was the impetus for doing this podcast to begin with we thought this would be a good way to get some assistance for us in this area that we know nothing about and maybe help other people who are in similar situations yeah and we should say that there's a, a little bit of an angle too and that we are both Americans, uh, we're both married to Japanese wives who are both in their second trimester and we're both living in Japan. And yes. uh, I think there are quite a few people, I guess, foreigners in Japan who find themselves in the same situation. You know, um, this ma major life event, this massive thing is happening and it's happening in a different culture and a different language. And um, I've always been interested to hear people talk about that because it's, um, you know, it's parenting kind of plus all of this added, uh, you know, culture, right. different scenario, different complications and, I, and situations. I would like to say that neither of us are fluent in Japanese. 
Justin, yeah. you are you are clearly better at Japanese than I am, but I like to call my my Japanese level convenience store level. I'm uh -huh. able to go in and buy stuff and get out safely. Yeah, <laughs> that's uh, that'll get you through a lot. That'll get you yeah. through like eighty percent of life. Um, I uh, am I would call myself like a low intermediate at this point, which is embarrassing yeah. because I've been in Japan for thirteen years cumulative. And I've taken a couple of years of Japan and uh, Japanese, rather, a couple of years of Japan. <laughs> that would be a good class, Japan. Uh, I've taken a couple of years of Japanese in school. Uh, I've studied every single day for the last three years pretty religiously. And I'm just now kind of broaching intermediate level, I feel. Yeah, uh, that doesn't that doesn't say anything about your lack of effort. That that's more speaks to the difficulty of Japanese overall. Yeah, I don't give I, it as much effort at all, and admittedly, I'm nowhere near your level. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, I I came to this conclusion recently that like no matter who answers the question, they'll always be embarrassed about how bad they are for how long they've been here. I think because right. it's just so <clears throat> difficult to learn. But, yeah. Um, it's also it's also very situational, like you said, the convenience store thing. You go into convenience stores very frequently, so then you become familiar with the things that you need to say. Yeah. And then sort of uh, what we're doing now in the parenting thing, it's like a totally new situation, whether you're at the fertility clinic at a hospital or eventually it's taking the kid to the preschool and that sort of thing. It's all new situations. And then you find your Japanese sort of like faltering all over again because you're not familiar with the, the vocabulary or whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah. There's lots of new learning going on, especially in, in the IVF clinics and hospitals that we're having to deal with now. Yeah. So, um, yeah, IVF. Uh, we've got a guest coming up, we should say. Um, yes, we do. And our very guest, first guest. Yeah. Our very first episode. Yeah, kicking things off really strong, I think. Uh, this guest is a, a nurse who worked in a fertility clinic, not in Japan, but in the United States. Uh, she worked in a fertility clinic for a couple of years uh, as a, I believe it was nursing manager. Let me just see. I've got my notes here. She was, yes, the nursing manager in a fertility clinic. And nice. uh, she also happens to be my sister. Nice. And so uh, we talked to her uh, and um, we'll get into that a bit <clears throat> later. But um, on that end, uh, we talked about more of the American pricing of things and the American situation uh, surrounding fertility clinics. But we thought we should preface it a bit by talking about uh, the Japan side of things, too. So um, right. maybe we can just kick it off straight away with the numbers. So, Mark, could you give us like a ballpark of what the cost yeah. is like? Yeah. So last year we started doing IVF. And from the beginning consultation phase to the different testing that you have to go through, through the egg extraction, and then finally the fertilization and implantation of the eggs, all of that cost us around eight thousand dollars mm. so in japan that would be um eight hundred thousand yen mm -hmm. yeah and um, that's um so that's yeah. sort of one full cycle yeah we were looking that's at $8, been $8, one dollars. full cycle yeah yeah um i should say that uh or like you know the one cycle uh is uh you guys did really well to come out with uh like a a good solid pregnancy after the one full cycle like that's great because a lot of people need to do it like in our case 
we're on uh, go number six at this point. Right. This so, is this is our second go. Oh, your second time around. Okay. Yeah. 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 So we did one full, and then got right back into it a couple months later, and now. now okay. We're here. Okay. Yeah. Cool. So we've got eight eight rounds of this between us. Um, and uh, I, my wife, we went to you know in the beginning. This has been four or five years ago now, but there are a couple of fertility clinics near where we live. Um, so we wanted to see both of them and then choose the one. Uh, and at the, the one we went to that we didn't actually choose, we had a nice consultation there. And my wife asked the nurse there, like, how many times do you think it takes on average? And that nurse said, uh, it seems like, you know, by about the sixth time, you can have some confidence that you'll get pregnant. Oh and my God. she, she Babe Ruthed it. She pointed at the fence. She called the shot. Wow. It was like, she called it at six. And so in my wife's mind, you know, even though we had a lot of trouble and it's like a lot of heartache and also you're attaching yeah. a lot of money to that heartache, which is, yeah, you know, painful in its own different kind of way, but Stress um, mentally, physically, financially, yeah, you're spending a lot to then end with this really sad situation and it doesn't feel good from any direction. But then yeah. uh, we always in our minds had this kind of like, well, you know, that first nurse did say about six times. And so, that kind of set our expectation in a realistic place, I think. And it got us to this point because we, gotcha. you know, you, you go through a round of egg harvesting, but that's only so many eggs and you only get so many viable, um, uh, zygotes. Is that the right word? Or so many viable, uh, yeah. yeah. Zygotes out of it. Yeah. Implantable embryos. That's what I'm trying to say. And then once once you go through those, you would have to go through the round of egg harvesting again. And so it's like starting the process over. And uh, we sort of were kept uh, hopeful through that by that initial nurse's prognosis of, you know. That's pretty good days. that you got enough eggs that you were able to give six times a go with that. We had to do the egg harvesting a couple of times, though. Oh, you so, did? Yeah, oh. it's like a, a full reset, you know, like, uh -oh. like going back to square one and doing it all again. Oh man, what a pain. And just uh, like, it, you know, without getting too deep into the weeds on the details and the numbers and everything, um, there are some things that you don't think about at the time, but then you realize after the fact, oh, I could have done this thousands of dollars more cheaply. Um, like, for example, right. had I tried to harvest more eggs in the beginning uh, rather right. than harvesting a few eggs and then getting into the implantation phase and then later needing to go back and harvest eggs again. Uh, right. Like we could have saved time and saved money uh, or when it comes down to uh, choosing embryos to implant and the, the days on which to implant them and things like that, you can kind of optimize that. So then in the end, save yourself a thousand here, or a thousand there. So it's definitely worth thinking about and talking to someone about to map all that stuff out because it, it does have, financial yeah. consequences that's consequences. almost impossible to do in the beginning though you you go in there and yeah. everything's thrown at you and you're like you're like looking at the doctor going guide me <laughs> yeah 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 and yeah you're hope you're hoping they're guiding you right yeah and sometimes they will guide you by saying sort of like well you've got option a or option b yeah. and then it's only after a round of experience that you realize oh option b actually cost me a lot and took a bit more time yeah so uh, I would, I guess, I would just advise ask questions and ask hypotheticals as much yeah, as you can sure. muster. Uh, well, we can hear 
more about it, uh, especially on the American side with our uh, interview with Paige McGee, my own sister. Let's, uh, let's get into that interview. So it is time for our first ever J-Pop's guest. This guest, uh, it's for our fertility episode here. Uh, we've got someone who spent uh, two years as a nursing manager and is currently the perioperative nursing manager. And uh, this is also my sister, Paige McGee. <laughs> Welcome, Paige. Thank you. Thank you. Welcome. We thought, like, to kick things off, you could just give us uh, a little more uh, background information and, um, you know, about yourself and uh, sort of how and why you got into the fertility biz. Yeah, um, a lot of my nursing background is more in perianesthesia, you know, preparing patients for surgery, like immediately recovering them. Um, and we had just moved to California, so I did travel nursing for a year around here and then needed a permanent job. And this fertility clinic was opening and thought this would be a really, you know, great field to get into. And also like helping someone open a new clinic was really exciting so um, accepted a position there to help them open their um, clinic and surgery center. And then, you know, within that role, you have to obviously learn a lot about, you know, art, IVF, and I really learned to love women's health and it ended up being really rewarding specialty. So you weren't trained to do anything IVF related to start with. It was just straight nursing job and then kind of transitioned into that field? Um, no, prior to working at this facility, I'd I had never worked in fertility. Mark and I, of course, have both been through, uh, well, not compared to our wives, which have been through a lot more, but uh, we've both been through, you know, the ringer with fertility in Japan. And um, we have just like this side of it, you know, we've never done anything uh, connected to a fertility clinic in the US. So we thought it would be a nice little compare contrast with our experiences and uh, with a pro from the US. So um, I think, Mark, you've prepared a few questions uh, to kick things off here. So take it away. Maybe I'll start with a little background on myself. Uh, so we've been trying to have a kid for probably about two years now, um, naturally. And last year, we decided it was time to go to a fertility clinic to get some assistance. And after going there, um, it took another year to get to the point where we're at. And that was lots of testing for both of us and I think it's um, in a intrauterine insemination. We tried that one, and then we've done IVF twice now. This is our second time. And so some of my questions about that were kind of cost-associated. What's kind of the average cost for that whole procedure in the U.S. right now from, you know, going from first like consultations to egg extractions to fertilization and then pregnancy. Yeah. So, um, consult alone is like $450. So it's just to be, you know, talk about your case, you know, all the lab work you have to do for the male and the female about 950 to a thousand dollars there. Once you get into the IVF, the retrieval, and then the ultrasound monitoring that go with that, that's $15,000. Oh, you're already jumping into thousands. Okay. Yes. <laughs> Medication is like six to seven thousand dollars. Then once you're pregnant, there's some monitoring there. That's four to six hundred dollars. This doesn't include the like we call FET cycle, fetal embryo transfer. So the cycle that includes that, 
that's like 4,200. Meds for that cycles two to 3,000. Wow. And then the like SIS, it's kind of not every clinic does that right before, but just to make sure that there's no polyps in the cavity, that is $600 a most. So that grand total is 29,000. If you take out the FET cycle, that gets you to about 22, 23,000 for one cycle. Wow. Wow. <laughs> That's if you did one cycle and went straight to FET. What is the insurance coverage on that sort of thing? When does insurance come into play? Yeah, that was my next question. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so um, I live in San Francisco. There's a lot of tech companies and tech companies here are known very well for having great benefits. Um, so a lot of these larger companies that attract a lot of the demographic that would be using these services are tech companies, and they provide, a lot of those provide fertility coverage. You know, some of them, um, there's one called Progeny, and they cover almost 100% for um, an IVF cycle who someone is actively trying to get pregnant, or if they want to bank embryos to use later, or if they want to do egg freezing as a preventative they cover 100% of that. Yeah, it's not the case for everywhere at all. It's very like Bay Area, this area kind of thing. Um, but, you know, even saying that many people have insurance, we would said about 60% come with insurance. And it's not all that one that covers everything. Mm. So yeah. those are those are private companies with employees who they're covering, correct? So you'd they're, have to be yeah. employed by those companies to get that kind of coverage? Yeah. Mm. Is there like state or national level insurance that covers any of that stuff? No, nor the time, nor is it mandated that they have to cover the time off for, for women to have to attend, you know, the multiple ultrasounds that you have when you're in a cycle, that time off is not granted. That's your personal time off. Even at the company level. These larger companies do sometimes offer that, oh, okay. but that's more of a rarity. Gotcha. I want to jump in and point out that, um, you know, everything in Japan, I feel like comes back to the falling birth rate. And so in terms of uh, national policies and things like that, they're just thinking, what could possibly help us produce more children? And then the policies tend to trend that way. So even in the last few years that say like uh, Mark and his wife and uh, me and my wife have been involved in uh, fertility treatments, there have been like only more subsidies coming up and more opportunities or, you know, we'll do something one year and then my wife will tell me the very next year, oh, we don't have to pay for this next year because they just passed a new law to actually cover that as part of national health insurance as well. So in Japan, it like whatever, you know, we might say here today, I feel like it's only going to increase in terms of available subsidies through the national health care program. Yeah, they're very, they're very proactive about helping people have babies and pay for that need, especially because I think Japan right now has one of the lowest birth rates in the world, not even just because people aren't naturally doing it, but I think fertility needs are higher here for some reason. It's, um, I think the, uh, the birth rate just off the top of my head is something like 1.2 children per woman, which um, they say to keep your population steady, you need a birth rate of 2.1 children per woman. Uh, and then, you know, you've got basically two kids to replace the two parents, and then that's how you keep a stable population. And Japan is right now at 1.2, and then the coronavirus year, uh, even, you know, births really tanked in the coronavirus year, so uh, it might even nationally have dropped off. 
Uh, so yeah, they're sort of in dire straits. They're about half of where they need to be, and all of their policies are geared toward increasing that number. Here's a tricky question for COVID: Did um, your fertility clinics close down during COVID, or was it considered an essential business? That was more controversial here. A lot of it, I I think it comes down to that we didn't have really like government enforced shutdowns, and uh, coronavirus was never as as massively sort of. Uh, dire in Japan as it was in the United States. So I don't believe we ever actually, uh, like it never interrupted anything that we wanted to do. There were things like I wasn't allowed to go as the husband, but uh, my wife could still go. And like sort of that was the change as opposed to shutting down the whole facility. Yeah, that's still the case in ours. Like I'm allowed to go in and use the restroom if I really have to. But but that's about it. Really be, yeah. There's someone at the door. Do you really have to? <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's very interesting. I mean, cost-wise, uh, what you've talked about, Paige, is, uh, you know, I paid quite a lot of money into it, but we went for multiple rounds over several years, and we're talking about sort of the same amounts in the end as what you've talked about in just one uh, cycle of treatment. And furthermore, we get a lot of that subsidized at the end of the year when we submit it in our taxes. So it's just far and away, I mean, uh, several times over um, more expensive in the U.S., it sounds like. Oh, yeah. Mark, what's next on your list? Kind of the uh, requirements for getting IVF done. It sounds like it's more of a a private system that is, is kind of elective there. But here, we we can't do it unless we've jumped through a couple hoops prior to that. So I was curious what, if any, there are any hoops in the U.S. that people need to go through. Yeah, depending, if you're self-pay and you're not going through your insurance, which is, you know, 40% of the patient population in this area, you can jump right to IVF if you want. If you are going to be using certain types of insurance and like this can differ from carrier to carrier, which then just differs from like job to job, you have to, you know, try for six months or um, have so many failed IUIs before you can um, jump to IVF. And even some lab results can skew that as well. Hmm. If if your insurance is going to pay, all bets are off if you choose to be self-pay. And I've seen patients that you know, worked at one place that would cover, you know, X amount. And they're like, oh my gosh, we're paying this much out of pocket. This is ridiculous. I could go work for this company that in doing the same kind of job, we'll switch jobs just to get the better coverage to help pay for this. Yeah, that makes sense. And Mark, was your experience similar with those sort of same timelines about the six months of this and, you know, needing to have tried this and that before jumping to IVF? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Our clinic required us to do six tries but naturally. And then after that, we would have to go in, get testing, and then do the IUI. And then once that fails, then we can get tested again and then do IVF. That was our requirement. Uh, Paige, just for the sake of everyone uh, listening, can you uh, like just give a description of IUI versus IVF, sort of the difference in the procedure and what they mean? Yeah, IUI is, um, is this going to be too much of an American reference? It's essentially man gives a sperm sample and you use the turkey baster to get it in there. <laughs> Um, perfect (laughs) it's relatable right yeah Yeah. it's more a turkey baster kind of thing you're monitoring the woman's cycle can or can be with with or without drugs um in that cycle 
but at the end of the day, it's just we're timing it at the right time of ovulation, and then it's turkey baster to to do that. Whereas IVF, you can start you start at a certain time in your um, in your cycle, and I mean I could get pretty detailed. Each month, a woman produces you know five to you know so many follicles per month. One of those follicles becomes dominant. The rest are they kind of just die off. And so the one follicle becomes dominant and um, that is the egg that you ovulate and that's how you can get pregnant that month. In IVF, when you recruit that entire cohort, instead of all those others dying off, you're recruiting the entire set of follicles and you're trying to keep them in a pattern of like growing on the same rate. So then you can retrieve the max number of eggs. Um, on your retrieval day. And to stimulate this, you're using injectable medications usually for 10 to 14 days usually. So it's like you have to have a a procedure with anesthesia to extract those eggs. So it's like orders of magnitude more involved and scientific and technical. Jumping to IVF. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, maybe I made, maybe I made IUI too, too simple with the turkey baster. (laughs) There's a little bit, you know, there is some monitoring there, but um I was picturing like six ninety nine at Target for a turkey baster, and then the doctor, <laughs> the doctor rushes back. It's an option, yeah. yeah. Um, but uh, so, um, Mark, you said that you had to do IUI uh, one one go around, was it? Yeah, six go around, yeah. just once. Okay, just one go around for that. Um, for us, I don't know if this was the same for you, Justin, but uh, so we did the natural way and failed a bunch. And then they make us do the IUI. And then after that, they kind of, they, they'll test me because Mm -hmm. up until that point, they kind of assume it's always the woman that's Uh. unable to do it. And then once they, the IUI failed for me, they were like, okay, let's get you tested and figure out maybe there's something wrong there. Uh, Mm. So in my case there was, so that's when we decided just to jump to the IVF. Okay. That's backwards from the U S I think you would usually, you test the male kind of at the same time you would test the female no i was yeah i was actually asking them i was like kind of bugging my wife to to say like hey let's both get tested let's figure this out i want to see if i'm messed up and they were like no 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 we'll just do the woman right now you just you just (laughs) sit in the car and wait yeah (laughs) yeah in your initial consultation it's usually you know the woman does the ultrasound the blood work you guys talk about what you've tried what you haven't tried and then the guys will usually be ordered to give their samples so that they can be tested. And, you know, hmm. in that same time, that would have saved a lot of time. <laughs> yeah. For, um, for us, we had, uh, it might be different clinic to clinic here. And we should say that Mark lives in a different prefecture. Uh, and so, uh, you're using an entirely different clinic and different prefecture. Yeah, yeah. Like, so, um, we have completely different rules, I think. Yeah. So uh, with us, we at our clinic, um, it was pretty much testing of both of us from the beginning. And um, we like had the sort of initial round of tests to do. And then there were additional tests when we didn't learn anything conclusive from the first round. And then we went deeper and did more tests. We basically paid for every test that man has conceived of and uh, sent some things to Spain and got those back after a little holiday. Um but uh, yeah, a, they could. That took a while, right? Sending it to Spain. Yeah, it was a, a. It was on the order of weeks for sure to wait for it to come back. I mean, a couple of weeks. Um, uh, I think that was to test the uh, sort of 
uh, am I using the term correctly, the bacteria like in the womb or something? It was not a test of the eggs or the mm. fertility yeah. per se, but of the like, um, what is that called? Like the something would... bacteria. Yeah, I'm drawing a blank right now. Yeah. But, I can um, tell you the abbreviation we we use, but <laughs> let well, me let me look at the actual. Okay, we um we went through all of that, and then finally, uh, yeah, we landed on IVF, and then did that for a few rounds. Um, so that was sort of our our journey through it. But um, how how yeah. long has the IVF process been for you? Uh, I would say it's been like three or four years. Um, and it takes a long time because, you know, there's like, you know, everything is obviously based on a monthly cycle. And yeah. um, then once it doesn't work out, you have to let things reset. And then it's like, okay, well, you know, at the time of your next period, then make an appointment. And so there's always a waiting period of weeks or a month or two, just so that you can even start the next phase. So um, for every failure, you know, it's like you've got months not necessarily, you know, down the drain seems a bit harsh, but there are months that have gone by before you can start the next cycle of it. So uh, right. we we went in six times. We're on lucky number six right now. And in the end, that's equated to about three years, three to four years. Damn. <clears throat> How When you were doing the IVF, my clinic limits the amount of eggs that you can fertilize and then put back at one go. We can only do one at a time. Were you guys oh, yeah. limited to? There's a limit for that, but then after um, after a number of like failures, then and depending on the age of the woman, uh, they are open to implanting two at once. And okay. so we, the successful one, the one that we're on now, was actually a, a double. You know, they they implanted two eggs at the same time. It's resulted in not twins, but just uh, just the one the one fetus but uh yeah Paige, what's that like in the u.s yeah um single embryo transfer is definitely the standard there um there are some very like they have to be extreme circumstances to do a double embryo transfer at this time um but it's like frowned upon but i think a little bit of that difference can be if you're doing genetic testing on the embryos and i don't know how readily available that is if that's a standard there if they're not genetically tested you can you know taking age and history into account you can kind of justify a little bit of doing a double embryo transfer but it is usually frowned upon hmm. i don't think they did much genetic testing on ours I think that was on the embryo. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Well, uh, Mark, what's up next on your list of cues there? Mine was uh, just kind of a broader question about IVF and maybe fertility in general. Like, do you see a rising need for IVF or do you see more of a uh, kind of a technology catching up with the need kind of? Yeah, I think it's it's um, it's an interesting answer I was thinking of for this is in a larger city, I think the, the difference here is really like there's 60%, about 60% of the population of the entire fertility clinic are women actually trying to get pregnant, whereas like the other 40% of patients are doing what they call fertility preservation. So that could be eggs or embryos. So in a larger city where there's more women 
you know, that are more career oriented and waiting to have a family to get to a certain level in their career, et cetera. In a larger city, I think that you see a lot of fertility preservation, but in like rural America, I think the need for it is a little bit less. For example, we heard about this one. I can't remember where it was somewhere in the Midwest. And it was just such a rural area that they would charter a plane for their patients to all go have embryo or um, egg retrievals in like a larger city, which is St. Louis, like not that large of a city. They would charter a plane just to like get the women to one place and like plan their egg retrieval all on the same day, which is very difficult to do. So I think it is area dependent. And I think it's also um, in the U S is mostly growing for fertility preservation and it's going more towards that than, um, you know, like 60, 40 is not that much of a, of a difference, but I think in rural America it's used more for women that are trying to get pregnant. Whereas bigger cities, it's the fertility preservation numbers are pretty high as well. That, that's amazing. That's like embryo tourism, um, which <laughs> is yeah. something that, that you hear about for, you know, specific medical treatments or, you know, if you live in a country where there's like a waiting list for a certain treatment, but you can hop the border and, and sort of pay to get it done ASAP, yeah. that happens. But to go from a rural town to a slightly bigger city uh, just for embryo harvesting, that's amazing. But it does, it makes yeah. sense. I mean, um, I don't know what the situation is like in Toyama. That's, uh, that's where Mark lives. I'm in Ishikawa. And um, in uh, Kanazawa, there are two standalone fertility clinics. And I mean, just two. And uh, they're on opposite sides of town. And it's like, well, which side of town do I live on? That's the one I'm going to use. And then there is a third uh, that's in sort of the prefectural hospital. And then I may have heard of a fourth. I don't know. But there's something like three or four. And you're talking about it's servicing. uh, The population of Kanazawa alone is almost half a million. And then if you like sort of widen out to the the broader area, uh, it's, you know, easily a million people. Uh, that are going to be trying to use the service. So at, uh, I don't know what the numbers are like if there's a, you know, fertility clinic on every street corner in San Francisco, but um, (laughs) here it was amazing that um, for my wife to have an appointment, uh, they would say, okay, we're starting appointments at 5 PM and it's first come first served. And you'll sit in the waiting room until everyone's through and so you would have to strategically choose when to go, because if you go at 530, there's already 25 women ahead of you in line and you'll be sitting in the waiting room for three or four hours. So then my wife would sometimes come home after work, we would eat dinner, and then she would go to catch like sort of the, the end of the waiting. And um, she would be there from like, say, 830 until 10 or 1030 p.m., because there's there's exactly one doctor who has to see everyone. And this is in the one clinic on this side of town that's meant to service a population of hundreds of thousands of people. And uh, it's just it's just amazing how limited it is here. But do you feel like, well, I guess, Mark, did it feel limited to you? And then Paige, does it feel limited in that same way in the U.S.? Yeah, for, for sure here it feels limited. Uh, I went to that clinic that your wife goes to because that's the only clinic, I think, in this region that does male fertility testing. But he only does it like two days a month. So I had to go in there on a certain day at a certain time. And I think it was like 4 or 5 p.m. as well. And then like wait in that massive line of people. Because he still Mm -hmm. sees other people too. He's not just doing the male stuff. 
and it's ridiculous. Over here, we have about the same. I think there's two clinics. Mm-hmm. And every time we do it, we get there at 9 a.m. I try to get there at like 8.30 because that's when they open their doors. But there's already like 20 people waiting. <laughs> yeah. So we're it's, never out of there usually before noon. Well, it's such a massively necessary thing in Japan with the birth rate being as low as it is. And it seems yeah. like they would just spring up on sheer demand that there would be enough people willing to pay. Uh, but what my wife has heard, and this is just sort of, uh, you know, what what people have talked about. It's not really I don't know the data behind it, but she said that it's generally considered like quite a high liability area of medicine to get into. And then if you're choosing, you know, your specialization in medical school, you're like, oh, that one's very risky, very touchy subject, very hard to navigate, like emotionally and liability wise. And so then it sort of uh, dissuades a lot of potential doctors from getting into it, which that's just the word on the street. Can I just say (laughs) a little bit off topic there, but Mm. I can see that 100% being true because doctors here seem to have horrible bedside manner. They don't (laughs) seem to care about that aspect of doctoring. And so to go into something that requires like an immense amount of bedside manner, Mm. I, I can see putting a lot of them off. Yeah, I I see that too. And luckily, we've got the bedside manner queen, Paige McGee, here with us. (laughs) (laughs) So she's an an old pro. And uh, also, yeah, Paige, what about sort of like, do you think the demand is being met? Or do you see lines around the block at fertility clinics in San Francisco? Um, Like I was saying, our clinic grew way beyond the wildest dreams that we had talked about. Um, while I was there, I think they anticipated doing a hundred to 150 egg retrievals in the first year to two year, maybe the first second year. And we ended up doing 1500 in the first year. So people were lining up as fast as they could, but on the same token, we always try to keep it. Whereas your first consultation appointment was never two weeks out as a new patient. Mm. So I mean, that's not a terrible wait, but if you're talking about, I think you're talking about the monitoring appointments where they just go have the ultrasound, not the initial consultation, right? Uh, yeah, I think so. Yeah. Um, so for those pre-COVID patients, we had a time from 7 to 9 a.m. And um, those were very busy times and it could, could get backed up like that. But in COVID, wanting to like limit the number of people in the office... So there wasn't like a rush at one time or another. We started doing appointments. And so we extended the time from 7 to 10. Actually, pre-COVID, it was 7 to 9. In the middle of COVID, it was 7 to noon. We would do what are called monitoring appointments. And you would have a specific 15-minute appointment time. Hmm. And so your wait time ended up being a lot shorter. You know, it took a lot more time out of the day for the for the doctor, like, you know, they couldn't see a new, they would have normally been seeing a new patient at that point. So, you know, it, it sways it a little bit, but, you know, like I said, never more than two weeks wait for an initial consultation. And then once we were scheduling the monitoring appointments, um, that really helped as well. We also hired um, some mid-level practitioners. So more nurse practitioners, physician assistants, um, to help with that because they can do the ultrasounds and the, the MD can then go do other consultations and stuff. So you had to grow the practicing staff. I don't know 
what's the practice for like mid-level practitioners? They're a nurse practitioner, or physician assistant. I have absolutely, I have absolutely no idea. Uh, yeah, but ditto. all I know is that the, at the clinic that we use there, it's, I mean, it's a five story building and it's, it's like, you know, it's a good sized clinic and there's exactly one doctor who has oh to see gosh. everyone. And then yeah. there, there are an army of nurses uh, and other assistants who are, you know, ushering people around, but you do have to wait on that one doctor. And I assume he's working like 16 hour days. I mean, it, it must be insane for that guy. Yeah. And I often wondered what would happen if this guy just got in a car accident or something like then <laughs> do you see a dip in population in this prefecture because you've lost the one guy who can handle it. But um, I feel like that's something that Japan should be a bit more active in is just making it easier if there are sort of like um, uh, even, I don't know, uh, if there are issues about like a fear of lawsuits, for example, or something, they need to streamline whatever that problem is to just open up more clinics to make it more available to people. It's interesting. I, I wonder what they, I guess I was calling them mid-level practitioners, but I guess they should be called advanced practitioners. Um, yeah, I wonder what they're, if that's even in general, do they use those in, in healthcare? Like if you go get your master's degree, can you be a nurse? Like in here, that'll be your primary care physician. I'm not as a nurse practitioner. Yeah. I'm not familiar with sort of the hierarchy of it or uh, legally who's allowed to do what. Yeah. I don't know. It's probably I, a lot different though. Yeah. But I've yeah. only gotten a sense of the scarcity really. And, um, <laughs> And I get, I get the sense that there's just nurses and then there's doctors here. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the fertility clinic where I was and any fertility clinic at, at a certain growth rate, it's going to be impossible, not impossible, but very difficult to operate without those, those mid-level advanced practitioners just to do, you know, the, I think maybe the standards different, maybe of like the expectation of how long you're going to wait. Mm. <laughs> Yeah, people don't seem to mind waiting here. Yeah, I think that you'd get a lot of people just walking out and say, oh, forget it. Do your waiting rooms Which, pile up with like 30, 40 people on certain days, or is it just generally like mm -hmm. trickling in? Um, there, When we did the open monitoring appointments, yeah, you'd have a little crowd in there. Oh, okay. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Especially, you know, right before work when you're trying to get to work. And you said you seem to sound like you go in the evening though yeah uh my wife did uh she would yeah all of her appointments were in the evening and i think that's just a general um you know in japan sort of people will be working and will work around that uh nine to five i think so, that's your clinic though because it's in a city uh yeah like a bigger city the clinic I, I go to i think they close at six or like quarter to six or something so oh really we could we didn't have that option moe the moe always had to take like mornings off or afternoons off from work to be able to make her appointments ours uh was more yeah in the evening and then it was sort of until the last patient leaves so it might might close at 10 30 10 45 at night um so they can get all the patients through but um yeah many many a night uh was spent there just sort of whiling away the hours on the smartphone or bring a book or something. Uh, I mean, not for me uh, because <laughs> I wasn't allowed, especially the last couple of years, but um, yeah, my right. wife was there pretty frequently, but um, maybe we have time to get into one more 
Q. So, uh, Mark, what's next on your list? Do you have anything else you'd like to talk about? Uh, I think that kind of covered it all that I had. Did you yeah. have any topics that you wanted to, that you think we missed? Um, well, this is just uh, one additional thing about the sort of doctor situation is it's very unfortunate if you don't like your doctor because there's just not another <laughs> option, you know? And um, yeah. Can, I, can saying... I say something to that really quick? Oh, yeah. Go ahead. I, this may, I don't know if this is an issue even in America, but I think I've seen one female fertilization doctor in Japan, or at least that I know of in this area. Generally, it's like an older dude, maybe 50, 60 years old. And then <laughs> there's a ton of like lady nurses that run around and do everything for him. But yeah, I feel like there should be, you know, kind of a better mix of doctors, especially when it comes to fertilization and stuff. Do you, do you see in America, there's more balance or does one gender ha- rule it? I wouldn't say one gender rules it, but there are, you know, I think there are more men in general still going into medicine, but the we had two male doctors grew a little bit, um, hired a third male doctor and they've been looking for a female doctor um, for almost two years now. So it's taken them a long time to find someone. Um, So they're looking for a female doctor, but in the meantime, they hired the nurse practitioner and the physician assistant. And those were female providers and they can do everything except for the extraction. So people felt comfortable with that. That's good. Um, Yeah, it's uh, we've had um, the experience of sort of it it all just comes down to the bedside manner of the one doctor who is in your area. (laughs) And it's just luck of the draw. And um, we had like it. My wife has grown to be fine with it, but I'm I still harbor some resentment against the doctor because he. (laughs) really would take kind of like a devil's advocate attitude with us like sort of no matter what we would say or what we would decide he would argue with us and then we obviously lack information compared to him so then we constantly i constantly felt like we were doing the wrong thing because you know we would say like well we've decided this and then he would come over the top with well maybe but have you considered x y and z and then we no matter what we said i always felt sort of backed into a corner by that guy and it, it yeah. led to some kind of like like negative feelings uh, between him and us. And um, I did not appreciate that whatsoever. And I think it's just, he's just a bit of a sort of cold dude. Like, I mean, people can be that way. That's fine. But it, it just, it's no good when that's your only option. Yeah. And maybe yeah. that, that aspect of treatment is not stressed as much uh, in, you know, whatever version of medical school he came up in you know, 20 or 30 years ago. Yeah. But anyway, so that's a little complaint from my end. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think in, in this area, like I said, there's the rural areas that are a different thing, but um, in this area, there's, there's another one around the corner. <laughs> Unfortunately. Yeah. Cool. Um, in our hometown, Justin in Kentucky, you have to travel to Louisville for IVF treatments, which is a oh, two really? hour drive. Yeah. And yeah, I th- you, there might be one in Newburgh, which is still an hour drive, but Yeah, it's a city of 60,000 that Paige and I are from. So even 60,000 people to zero fertility clinics is not a good ratio. I don't yeah. know much about Kentucky. 
No, no I, one. I, if you told me there was one fertility clinic in Kentucky, I'd believe you. Yeah. <laughs> if you if you told me there was one fertility clinic in Kentucky that the Supreme Court had just shut down, I would believe that as well. <laughs> That's, um, nice. Anyway, um, yeah, I guess we can sort of wrap it up. Um, thanks a lot, Paige. You are a true yeah. expert, and I'm always impressed. I by don't know you. if I am. Paige, no, no, you definitely are. Yeah, thank you very much for your time today. Of course. Paige is far and away the most like usefully intelligent person in our family. That's not true. So true. It's like, oh, I'll ask Paige about it. That thought crosses my mind very frequently. And I think all of our siblings and parents and everyone are like, ah, yeah, we better ask Paige about it. So you're fielding a lot of questions for everyone. So we have a couple of segments now. Uh, The first one is called my question for you is <laughs> my question for you is this week it's about ceremonies and uh what's your okay. feeling on ceremonies in general and i'll preface it a bit by saying that in japan there are a lot of uh ceremonies that will of course be you know culturally foreign to guys like us a couple of american guys and uh you'll need to take your your newborn baby to a shrine and uh you yourself will have to dress up in some Japanese garb, perhaps. Uh, are you comfortable with all this stuff? Are you planning to do all these sorts of ceremonies, or um, uh, what are your thoughts? No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> is 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 the simple answer uh-huh. to all of that? No, we don't. My my wife doesn't come from a very strict ceremonial need, I guess, in her family, mm-hmm. and uh, neither do I. My family. We're not religious. We don't do any of that stuff. So mm-hmm. neither of us have any any need to feel like we need to get the baby like baptized or blessed or lifted up on an altar of any kind. Yeah. Yeah. We're just happy to have eventually have the baby. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think um, in general in Japan, it's probably standard practice. Uh, you know, there's something that occurs. And when the time comes, I'll know more about this. Uh, right now, I'm shamefully uninformed but you'll you know take a newborn baby to a shrine and dress the baby up and it's a photo opportunity and this and that sort right. of thing. i should and, say uh, um i did hear about a dog day oh and i yeah. forget the actual japanese term for it but it's like the uh i think 16 to 20 weeks of pregnancy it's fairly common for the pregnant woman to go into a shrine and get blessed and we were actually we're actually thinking about doing that oh yeah more from i guess we're paranoid at this point we want everything to go well so i'm Uh kind of like trying to hedge my bets everywhere (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah Um, so that that is one ceremony that we are thinking about doing and yeah, I don't see an issue doing any of the ceremonies. I just don't feel any obligation doing them. Yeah, um, I yeah, I'm entirely, uh, as you say, I'm, uh, you know, we're non-religious, and um, I'm also like even anti-superstitious, you know, like that sort of thing. <laughs> like, right. like, come on, just do the practical stuff, you know, that's sort of my <laughs> mentality all the time. But uh, a few years ago, when we were in the midst of, you know, one of our various IVF treatments, I was riding my bike down in Shikoku which is one of the, you know, southern islands of Japan. Right. And I got to this spot and uh, there was a sign that said, if you can take a rock, it's along a beach, like a rocky beach. It said, if you can take one of these rocks and if you can throw it and have it land up on this cliffside, sort of like a, 
you know, along the rocky coast, you'll have some sort of like uh, tall, cliffy sort of rocks yeah. that pop out of the shore. If you can throw one of these stones and have it stay on top of this like jutting cliff, then uh, it's good for fertility. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, obviously, obviously. Obviously. So um, I thought like, well, we're in the midst of IVF treatment and all the cost is I have to throw a rock, which is intrinsically fun in and of itself. I might just throw the rock anyway, because, you know, even without the they If they didn't say that and just said, try to get it on top, I'd be like, all right. (laughs) Yeah, let's do it. So I took the fertility challenge on that beach and um, I heaved the rock and it stayed up on the cliff and I was like very happy about it and pleased with myself. And then I got back on my bike and continued riding. But uh, then that round of IVF didn't work out, which put me in a real sour mood about the whole rock throwing experience. Uh, but right. now, you know, it's it's years later, but maybe that rock's influence is still being felt in our successful treatment uh, in round number six. This is kind of, I mean, there, there's no like, there's no black and white like contract with that. So yeah, like you're, exactly. you're throwing a rock, they're saying it's good luck. Overall, yeah. it's like it could be good luck this time or 10 years from now. Yeah, you don't know. They're really defensive down there at the, at the rock beach. Yeah, they they won't sign anything. They won't put anything in writing. Uh, yeah, so that's how I kind of feel about it. If it takes that amount of investment for me, like the same amount that it takes to throw a rock onto another larger rock, then I'll right. do it. But beyond that, I'm always a bit standoffish about these things. But I also don't like to rock the boat too much. So if there's sort of a cultural norm that is just a matter of dress the baby up once and take them down and it's not a weekly thing and it doesn't cost $500 like that sort of thing. I'll, I'll generally go along with it. Right. If it's not cost prohibitive or something that's obviously gouging people, yeah. then, then sure. Yeah. Let's go do it. Yeah. Uh, cool. Well, um, we've got another segment here. Uh, this will be recurring. This is Japanese of the day. As we explained earlier, in this very episode, neither of us are fluent in Japanese, nor even very good at it. So uh, our Japanese of the day is going to be maybe something child or pregnancy related uh, and could be a cultural thing, could be a word. But um, today's word, and this should be obvious to everyone, is the word tamago. And uh, you might know tamago <laughs> from food. It means egg. And so it, it was just a strange thing to me that I came to Japan and learned tamago means egg in the context of food all the time. What do you want to eat? Let's have a tamago. And then, just like the English, I should point out, it's also the same word for uh, a woman's eggs throughout the fertility process. And uh, I don't know why. In English, I guess you learn the two eggs, the egg of like sort of fertility and the egg of diet. And... uh, in your mind, they're somewhat separate. But when I came to Japan, I only learned tamago, of course, as food. And then at the fertility clinic, I was like kind of giggling to myself like, oh, they're calling her eggs, eggs. It was weird in <laughs> Japanese, not in English for some reason. And uh, I don't know if this ever struck you or um, it, anything it like that. It does after you say it, but not when we were doing any of the IVF. <laughs> oh, really? It seems totally natural to you, eh? It did at the time, but now that you say it, I I feel like it's weird. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> Although I, I do have I have a strange story about this, not about the Japanese, but about just the word egg itself and what egg mm-hmm. is. So I can remember being like five and watching the Land Before Time, 
-hmm. and there was this creature that went around stealing eggs and uh -huh. eating them from the other dinosaurs. I don't remember the name of the creature or anything, but I remember thinking like, man, this creature's so bad. He's eating eggs. And then I, for some reason it clicked. Like <laughs> I eat eggs. Like, Oh my God, I'm eating eggs. <laughs> like I'm from the bad other, guy. I'm the bad guy. And then I remember not eating eggs for a long time. Wow. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. That's so good. The way those things register. It reminds me of the Calvin and Hobbes comic strip. When, uh, Calvin asks his parents, are hamburgers made out of people from Hamburg? <laughs> and then, uh, the mother says, no, that's disgusting. They're made out of cows. And then Calvin said, I'm eating a cow. And he said, I don't think I can finish this and put it down. Yeah. That stuff just registers in a weird way sometimes. And uh, yeah. for some reason, Tamago struck me as being very funny because it's always just the, I don't know, it's on a menu and then suddenly yeah. it's, uh, a part of something I'm spending thousands on and it's biologically very important. Right. But yeah. uh, I guess the, the advice would be be fearless in your use of the word Tamago because it is totally suitable and totally natural, though it may seem very common and casual. Yep. Uh, nice. Go for it in the fertility world. Excellent. Yeah. So uh, those are our fantastic segments. My question for you is, and Japanese of the day. Great. And I think that brings us pretty nearly to a close. Yeah, I think we're about ready to wrap up for the day. Yeah. Um, I think this was a pretty good first episode. Thank you for joining us today. Yeah, thanks a lot for stopping by. Um, in the future, we will have guests intermittently. And, um, you know, we really want to, again, like kind of not really, we don't want you to take our word for anything, but at least we want to talk things out. And we think it's... Um, interesting to uh personally i like to listen to other people discuss their child rearing in japan as a foreign person so uh you know if you can get yeah. any ideas uh that will make us very happy and uh feel free to contact us in various ways i'm gonna i'm gonna put up a uh a twitter link that people can go to and if they have any questions or comments about anything we've said here or didn't say here that they wish we did say please um Go ahead and, uh, you know, tweet to us. Let us know. Yeah, and we could have a whole new segment. Viewer yeah, questions. Yeah, I mean. Viewer, listener questions. Segments. Viewer, listener questions. Yeah, perfect. It's already titled. <laughs> That's done. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. That would be lovely. So uh, we'll have some various links in the description. And check yep. those out. And get in touch with us, please. Yes, please do. Cool. Well, uh, thanks a lot. And we'll see you next time.